Gresham College presents What is the Value of Finance and Insurance to the Economy? by Professor John Kay, CBE, FBA, FRSE. I first walked into this building in 1989. The man who asked me to come into it is staring at me from the back of this room on the right there, where there's a, a portrait of Sir David Rowland. I think it's a portrait of Sir David Rowland. It's not a terribly good one, <laughs> frank about it. Um, I came into an institution which was gradually facing up uh, to a crisis whose scale it considerably underestimated. And it was a, a rather valuable education, that experience for me in what was happening in the financial services industry, an experience which I was able to draw a considerable benefit, I think, over 25 years that followed. One of the salutary moments at an early stage in that, in that experience, when I was trying to find out what actually went on in this institution, was listening to someone talking about the extent of the growth in the business Lloyds during the 1980s, and I asked the question, how much of the growth in business you're describing actually walked in through the front door, as distinct from being generated within the market itself? And what was interesting about that question was that people were quite slow to understand the question itself. I had to reframe it two or three times before people struggled to get, give me an answer. Because what was happening in Lloyd's in the 1980s was a microcosm of what happened across the financial services sector from the 1970s to today, which is that the financial service sector came more and more to trade with itself. And there was a peculiar manifestation of that in the Lloyd's insurance market, as uh, John has explained. Uh, Lloyd's, as all is and always has been, predominantly a reinsurance market. But people realised that if you could sell reinsurance, you could also sell reinsurance of reinsurance. And perhaps if you could sell reinsurance of reinsurance, you could even sell reinsurance of reinsurance of reinsurance. And there was even perhaps a market for reinsurance of reinsurance of reinsurance of reinsurance. And all of this generated profitable business, or apparently profitable business. But you can easily see that if you created these kind of contracts, it would be very difficult. In fact, it would quickly become impossible to drill down and discover the nature of the underlying risk exposures uh, which you were taking on. <clears throat> and one of the things that prompted the crisis, which I'm describing, there were several causes of the, the crisis in Lloyd's, and this was only one of them. But one of them was the, the structure of contracts about which the people who were taking on the risks knew nothing, except that people had modelled these kind of contracts and discovered that historically you would virtually never have had to pay out. But what happened in the late 80s was there was a series of catastrophes 
One important example was Piper Alpha, an oil rig in the North Sea, which went on fire, killed 200 people, destroyed the rig, and was then one of the largest marine insurance claims which had ever been made. Much of that was reinsured at Lloyd's. But the result was that an original claim of about a billion dollars turned into ten times that amount in terms of total claims as the reinsurance contracts triggered the reinsurance of reinsurance and the reinsurance of reinsurance and reinsurance and so on. And the result of that was actually that the risk far from being spread among people who understood the risks they were taking on was that the risk in fact became concentrated on people who understood nothing about it at all. That was an early example of the business of people trading with each other, leaving mistakenly. They were making net profits by doing so, actually appearing to generate these profits for a time, and then seeing the collapse which came from it. So when I watched what was happening in credit markets around the world from 2003 to 2008, I was asking myself the question, where are the equivalent of the English gents who naively signed up to these contracts and in the end ended up having to sell the furniture from their stately homes to meet the Lloyd's losses? What I did not understand, actually, was the extent to which the people who were the ultimate takers of these risks were actually located in large financial conglomerates themselves. But what I've been talking about is the way in which we've been over 30, 40 years now through a process of financialization in which the financial services sector has grown very rapidly, but a very large part of that growth has been in the business of trading with itself. In fact, it trades with itself to an extent that almost defies belief. Global trade in goods and services has expanded a great deal over the last 50 years. But global trade in foreign exchange today is 100 times the volume of the underlying volume of trade in goods and services. Uh, a lot of people are still under the illusion that what banks do is uh, the kind of maturity transformation, in fact, that I've described. They take our savings and they turn them into loans to businesses. Actually, loans to non-financial businesses account for less than 3% of the total assets of UK banks today. The total volume of uh, nominal derivative, nominal volume of derivative exposures today totals about $600 trillion, which is a mind-blowing number, and it's in fact, it ought to be a mind-blowing number, because it's between two and three times the value of all the assets in the world. And some of you may know that a company called Spread Networks has recently built a telecoms link through the Appalachian Mountains. The purpose of that link is to reduce the time it takes to transmit data between Chicago and New York from 7.3 milliseconds to 6.6 milliseconds. Now, since none of us can detect a millisecond, you might ask what this is for. And the answer is what it is for is to enable the computers that are each at each end of 
this telecoms link, which are trading by reference to program, pre-programmed algorithms to enable them these, these, these computers, in effect, to front run each other. Much then of the growth of financial services is in this intra-sector trade. And that one is one of the numerous reasons why you should not take any of the figures that have been quoted this evening for contributions to GDP of the financial services sector. You should not attract any credence to these figures, whatever. It has been known since the 1940s uh, that the general techniques of uh, national income accounting, when applied to financial services, do not work. And if you were any doubt, in any doubt of that, you simply have to observe the fact that one of the largest increases we've ever seen in the share of financial services and GDP occurred between 2008 and 2009. That doesn't seem to reflect a common sense view of what was actually going on in 2008-2009. Instead, I think we need to ask what financial services and they are, I entirely agree with Anne when she says an economy needs financial services. But I, I, we also need to make the point that it is, does not follow from that that the more financial services an economy has, the better and more effective it is. We need, in my view, a financial services sector to do four things. We need it to operate a payment system. Uh, that's the core utility of finance the basis on which we receive our wages and salaries, pay our bills, in which businesses transact with each other. And this is actually what most people who work in financial services do. They're not masters of the universe and telephone number salaries. They're people doing rather mundane clerical jobs in banks and insurance companies. But we need a payment system. And the payment system of all areas of finance is probably the one currently going through most disruptive in innovation. And in 20 years' time, I think our children and grandchildren will be astonished that we used to wander around with bits of folding paper in our, uh, in our pockets in order to buy a cup of coffee. The second thing we need financial services for is wealth management. Now, wealth management is a term that's been appropriated for rather expensive services uh, provided to so-called high-net-worth individuals, but I mean something broader than that. I mean the process by which people are enabled to finance education when they're young, buy houses, provide for retirement, and pass wealth on to subsequent generations if they want to do so. Uh, the third and fourth of these activities, however, are the two with which wholesale financial markets are mainly concerned, which are capital allocation, which Anne has talked about a bit, and risk mitigation, which John has talked about a bit. And since we're in this building, the one of these four on which I want to focus this evening is actually the fourth of these, risk mitigation. Now, there's an economist called Michel Albert, who uh, in the early 1990s wrote a, a book. This is a French economist who actually, in the way French people sometimes do, became chief executive of a large French insurance company. And the book was called Capitalism Contra Capitalism, and it explained that there were two origins, historical origins, of the world insurance industry. 
One was this, which was Swiss villages, where in the 17th and 18th century, the villagers would gather together to mutualize the risks which they face in the rather hostile environment in which they operated. To caricature a bit, they would agree that if one of their cows died, the village would come together to buy a new one. And that kind of mutualization of societal risk was part of the origin of insurance in that part of southern Germany and Switzerland. And uh, that became, as the Swiss villagers became more prosperous and descended from their mountain pastures, you'll be aware that the centers of the global reinsurance industry today now are found in southern, uh, in southern Germany and in Switzerland. And today we talk about not people clubbing together to buy a new cow, uh, but about the large tower blocks of Munich Re and Swiss Re and Zurich Re, which are global players in this particular market. The other source of the global insurance industry uh, was the one we are in today. Uh, but that, as everyone knows, I think, originated in Lloyd's Coffee Shop. Uh, Lloyd, and in Lloyd's Coffee Shop at the turn of the 18th century, English gents would gather together to while away the time, spend their money, and to gamble. And they would gamble with each other, and they would gamble on more or less anything. They would gamble on the, the health of the king. They would gamble on the, the results of battles that the British army and navy were fighting around the world. They would gamble on the weather and the state of the tides. And that transformed gradually into an institution because merchants realized that they could come to this place and lay off some of the risks associated with a growing mercantile development of the British economy. So that risk transfer, risk management, trading in risks has two basic origins. One is the gambling motive, which was the beginning of Lloyd's Co Coffee House, and the other is the mutualization process, which went on in the Swiss village. And these two central activities of risk management, risk transfer, and risk trading continue to be part of the business of risk transfer and risk management in the world today. The origins in gambling and the origins in mutualization. Now, one modern version of this debate happened in the, in the 1990s when something called the credit default swap was invented. And when the credit default swap was invented, ISDA, the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, commissioned Robin Potts, a London QC, to answer the question, are these new contracts gambling or are they insurance? And of course, if they were gambling, they would have fallen to be taxed and regulated under UK gaming legislation. And if they were insurance, they would have fallen to have been taxed and regulated under UK insurance legislation. Well, Mr. Potts came up with the answer, as council was wont to do, Mr. Potts came up with the answer his client hoped and expected, which was that the contracts were neither gambling nor insurance, and therefore didn't fall under either legal regime. And Mr. Potts didn't go to as far as explaining what these contracts actually were, uh, but it meant that it was possible and indeed desirable 
to write these contracts under English law. And one of the result, things that followed from that was it was one of the spurs to something called the Commodity Futures Modernization Act in the United States, which established essentially the same position in the U.S. market. And that was necessary to facilitate the explosion of activity in credit default swaps, which happened uh, from then on and was central to the global financial crisis of 2008. We've already heard mention of the Big Short. And this is a man at the centre of the, the Big Short. His name is Fab Touré. He was a salesman in Goldman Sachs and was particularly involved in something called the Abacus Transaction. The Abacus Transaction was probably the largest, as it were, bet on the collapse of the subprime mortgage market on behalf of a hedge fund manager called John Poulsen. Poulsen actually wouldn't talk to Michael Lewis, which is why he isn't featured in the big short. He managed to escape being played by Brad Pitt through that particular strategy. Uh, but the Abacus transaction was essentially a bet on the collapse of subprime mortgage market in the United States. And by 2006, Mr. Potts may not have been clear what uh, credit default swaps were in the 1990s, but they were essentially instruments of gambling. A uh, famous judge, English judge, had defined for Mr. Potts what gambling meant, which was two people believing, taking different views of the outcome of the same event, agree that if the event occurs, one will lose and the other will gain. That is a gamble, and that's what Poulsen and the people who are on the other side of this trade doing. One of the curious things by virtue of the amount of intermediation that was going on was that it was entirely possible, indeed rather probable, that the same people were on both sides of the, of the trade which was being engaged in there. But they didn't know that because while Paulson had some understanding of what was going on, the people on the other side of the trade had very little. Indeed no one had much understanding of really of what was going on uh, this is how Toure described the transaction to his girlfriend. Uh, it's what if we created a thing, he said. There's no purpose, it's absolutely theoretical, and nobody knows how to price. Well, when the value of these contracts emerged in 2008, they turned out not, in fact, to be very large. But that was not, of course, how Toure described these particular transactions to his clients. So, second part of our exam question this evening is about regulation. And I rarely give a talk of this kind to a general audience without people saying, of course, what we need is more regulation uh, of the financial sector. And uh, I rarely give a talk to a financial audience without them saying uh, what we need is less of this burden of red tape and regulation. And of course, we've heard a good deal of that I'm closer to being on the what we need is less regulation side because I think regulation has in large part been a source of the problem rather than a source of the solution. Indeed, nothing could illustrate that better than the story of the credit default swap and Mr. Potts. Because if you ask why did the credit default swap came, come into being in the first place, the answer is to exploit 
differences in the regulatory treatment of banks on the one hand and insurance companies on the other. Because the basic principle of capital requirements for banks is that banks must provide regulatory capital by reference to the amount of the loan, while insurance companies need to provide capital by reference to the amount of the expected loss. So if you have a transaction like a large loan to ExxonMobil, which was indeed one of the first credit default swaps, then if you can uh, have that transaction treated essentially as an insurance policy, or the risk on it treated as essentially a risk in insurance rather than a banking risk, you can put much less regulatory capital behind it. And that was what the credit default swap was created. <coughs> of course, as has happened so often uh, in the financial services sector, by the time we got to 2006, the market had exploded, the original purpose had been lost sight of it, and it had simply come to serve other but the credit default swap came into being as an instrument of regulatory arbitrage, and a great deal of the complexity of the financial system I've been describing has essentially that origin. So what, in my view, we need is not more regulation of the kind we have. I think the regulation of the, we, of the kind we have has proved itself a failure. It is at once extensive and intrusive. It is... <coughs> nevertheless largely captured by the industry in that it talks the language of the industry and sees the industry through the eyes of people in the industry and it is ineffectual in creating a financial services sector <coughs> that is actually dedicated to the needs of its real customers in terms of wealth management, capital allocation, risk mitigation and the like. What we need in my view is a quite different regulatory philosophy. And that's a regulatory philosophy that is based essentially on uh, issues of examining issues of industry structure and issues of industry uh, and issues of personal and corporate incentives. And I think it's already described how Glass-Steagall was part of an older regulatory structure that was based, focused on industry structural issues. It separated retail from investment banking. In my view, we don't just need to separate retail from investment banking. We need to separate the distinct functions of investment banking. Because if you ask what the modern investment bank does, it engages typically in securities issuance, in advisory of work for corporations. It makes markets. It takes positions on its own account and it provides asset allocation services to external clients. And I think I just have to list these functions for it to be apparent that each of them is potentially in conflict with each one of the others, both in terms of relating to the interests of the ultimate customers and in terms of the culture that is required to make these things effective. So we need to effect structural change in the industry, and we also need to create an ethical culture personal and corporate responsibility. And if you doubt the need for that, here is our Goldman executives describing or defending these abacus transactions after the thing had blown up to a Senate committee in 2010. And when you heard that your employees in these emails 
when looking at these deals, said, God, what a shitty deal. God, what a piece of crap. When, when you hear your own employees or read about those in the emails, do you feel anything? I, th I think that's very unfortunate to have on email. Are you <laughs> and, and very unfortunate. I don't. I don't on emails, please, please don't take that. How about way. feeling that way? I think it's very unfortunate for anyone to have said that in any form. How about to believe that and think, sell it? I think that's unfortunate as well. There's only one clip I can give to top that, I think. And it's. Everybody is to leave here immediately. This cafe is closed until further notice. Clear the room at once. Close me up on what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> it was, I'm afraid, all too prescient for a view of what would happen a few decades later. Thank you very much. For more information, please go to the Gresham College website, www.gresham.com dot ac dot uk